the parliament also passed unanimously my private members motion to declare november as the hindu heritage month which is a good thing and uh, the key things about the hindu heritage month my two objectives were two things one that we recognize celebrate educate share the contributions of hindu heritage to the mankind over thousands of years we know what hindus have done what hindu heritage has done what hindu culture has done for hundreds of years thousands of years the contribution of hindu heritage to medicine astronomy uh, various fields science is very well documented but most canadians don't know that and we have to use this opportunity this hindu heritage month to educate them second most important to me is that we have to recognize the contributions of hindu canadians to the socio economic development of our country i have to say i wish he were here i would want to congratulate him because in the united states we have five or six indian hindu congressmen in the democratic party who are ashamed of that Yeah. yeah. And I say and I say kudos to you Canadians that you've got your uh, your MPs representing you rather than betraying you. Then the nest of snakes is Harvard where these snakes are being produced, born, nurtured. They're breeding snakes with this poison and then these snakes are being exported all over. They bring snakes from India, baby snakes and make them put poison and send them back. and there's a lot of this going on and i would say a couple of thousand people from india have been brainwashed turned around in in from industry from media from academia from policy making all kind of people like that have come and gone through these seminars and conferences and been sent back it's like a training manual for a hindu toolkit think of it like that so we're training people on what are these issues what to say So if you say what I have said, and somebody wants to push back and get more data, then we have the data also, the evidence. That's why the book is big, but don't let that scare you. Namaste, everyone. Om. As uh, is our Indian tradition. Uh, let's start with the prayer with pandit ji before we start the event bhagwan ka aashirwad lene ke liye is book ki safalta ke liye rajiv ji chandrarya ji aap sabhi prarthna hai ki shastri ji ke sath deep prajwalan आप सभी को सादर नमन आज बड़ी खुशी की बात है कि आज हिंदू हेरिटेज सेंटर हिंदू संस्कृति में हमारे परम श्रद्धेया सिराजी मल्होत्रा जिनके साथ में भी हमेशा व्हाट्सएप पर और हमेशा अवगत रहता हूँ सब सारी गतिविधियों से जिन्होंने पूरे विश्व में भारतवर्ष में और भारतीय सनातन संस्कृति हिंदू धर्म का खूब प्रचार प्रसार जिनके माध्यम से हो रहा है आज हमारे मध्य कुछ गत वर्ष कुछ वर्ष पूर्व श्री मल्होत्रा जी हमारे मध्य यहीं विराजमान हुए थे मुझे 
बड़ा अच्छा याद आ रहा है मल्होत्रा जी कह रहे थे अब मैं अंदर प्रवेश किया तो मुझे याद आ गया संस्मरण यहीं तो मल्होत्रा जी एक बार पुनः आज आपका हृदय से हम हिंदू हेरिटेज सेंटर की ओर से भी हार्दिक अभिनंदन करते हैं और बड़ी खुशी की बात है हमारे एम पी श्री चंद्र चंद्र आर्य जी जो प्रथम बार यहाँ वैसे तो व्यक्तिगत रूप में आए हैं पहले भी लेकिन प्रथम बार आज इस समारोह में सम्मिलित हो रहे हैं इस कार्यक्रम तो मैं आपका भी हृदय से अभिनंदन करता हूँ हिंदू हरिकृण और बाकी बहुत पता और आप सबों का बहुत धन्यवाद आज के कार्यक्रम सम्मिलित होने का बाकी आगे कार्यक्रम धन्यवाद दीप प्रज्वलन के बाद पुस्तक के विमोचन के लिए ईश्वर से प्रार्थना करते हुए शास्त्र जी लीड करेंगे एंड मैं धन्यवाद कहना चाहता हूँ एक छोटी सी बात मैं कहूँगा कि ये बहुत विशेष बात है कि चंद्र आर्य जी भी हैं राजीव जी भी हैं एक तरफ स्कॉलर हैं एक तरफ क्षत्रिय हैं जो हिंदू संस्कृति के लिए दोनों एक साथ हमारे सामने स्टेज पे हैं दैट्स अ वेरी स्पेशल थिंग अगर वहाँ से आचार्य के रूप में अगर कुछ पॉलिसीज़ के लिए कुछ मार्गदर्शन मिलता है तो उन पॉलिसीज़ का इम्प्लीमेंटेशन उन पॉलिसीज़ को कानून के तरीके से कि संस्कृति धर्म आगे कैसे बढ़े चंद्र आर्य जी उसमें इतने अग्रणीय काम कर रहे हैं तो उसके लिए हम बहुत बहुत धन्यवाद करते हैं सो so, ये जोड़ी है जो धर्म की निरंतरता को आगे बढ़ाने के लिए हमेशा तैयार है तो ये मूर्ति बहुत ही विशेष है मेरी दृष्टि में so, धन्यवाद चंद्रार्य जी धन्यवाद शास्त्री शास्त्री जी धन्यवाद राजीव जी हाँ प्लीज आप विमोचन करवाएं शास्त्री जी धन्यवाद शास्त्री जी सो जस्ट टू रिमाइंड द आउटलाइन ऑफ टूडेज इवेंट वी विल हैव comments from chandra arjaji first and uh, then we will have a talk with rajiv ji's talk and in the meantime you'll have the index cards if people want to ask questions we have volunteer here ashish can you raise your hand ashish is collecting the index cards we'll take those questions and i know rajiv ji really uh, enjoys q and a and good discussion so uh, just write your questions there if you write your name and if something is not clear i'm i'll i'll call up call you up for clarification on that question and stuff and if there is common similar questions i'll combine them and stuff and uh, ask the questions on your behalf i have a list of seven or eight questions to kind of uh, uh, mix and match with your questions so uh, as i was saying it, it, to me it is a very special thing when we have a acharya kind of a person like a scholar rajiv ji who's on stage they they go deep into the content and they say okay how the civilizational continuity works uh, should go keep moving forward at the same time uh, as we respect our scholars and acharyas and pandits we uh, i always debate in my head bhagwan ram was kshatriya so we respect bhagwan ram and krishna at the same time so chandra arya ji is the kshatriya who is uh, uh, who's leading the charge i know he has been a 
uh, key, he's been instrumental for this Hindu Heritage Month that we are in right now. Uh, so Honorable Chandra Arjaji, I mean, I have your whole biography, which I'm sure people are gonna get bored with if I read it, uh, but uh, I checked before you come, pretty much everybody knows you, but we, we all know Honorable Chandra Arjaji. Uh, as I grasped through his work, his passion has been more into the middle class, normal uh, middle class people. How do they live their life uh, nicely in terms of having full housing for all Canadians? How do they retire effectively so that policy making and Canadian policies support it? And as, a, as, a, as an important politician, he has uh, contributed in lots of, uh, uh, lots of policy making committees and this and that, so I, I won't bore you with that. But some of my heartfelt thought is like, he's taking our Sanskriti's ideology, which is holistic, inclusive, and getting it done through the systems, because these systems have intricacies, and you need to be really a critical thinker. You should be able to think in multiple dimensions and impact and different levels. So it requires significant, uh, not only critical thinking and intelligence to connect the dot of what the policy's impact is gonna be, it's about uh, uh, consideration of all kinds of realities. So uh, I, I, can't, uh, I can't say enough about the uh, effort of Chandraraji in terms of moving our Hindu heritage uh, uh, forward. Chandraji, if you have a few comments from you, please. Namaskar, thank you so much for uh, welcoming me here. Uh, at the outset, I would like to thank uh, Ravi Huda and Bharati ji for uh, uh, inviting me, making sure that I come here on time. Uh, you know, this year has been uh, quite momentous for Hindu Canadians. A uh, lot of things are happening. Uh, first, uh, we have uh, a Hindu Prime Minister in the United Kingdom, which is a big thing for us. So we have got uh, two people of Indian heritage, one the Vice President of the United States and now the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. That's a big deal for us. And I hope that motivates our younger generation uh, Hindu Canadians to step forward, to be more active in the public service and uh, take the Hindu Canadians to the new height. Next is that uh, I, I think at the beginning of this uh, year, uh, there was a bill in Canadian Parliament uh, banning the Nazi symbol of hatred, which we all support that the Nazi symbol of hatred should be banned, but uh, called it swastika. So that was when I decided, you know, no more keeping silent, no more working in the background. We had to come to the forefront. That was when I made the statement on Swastika. And uh, I can tell you that a uh, lot of MPs, in fact, some of the MPs came and told me, Chandra, that is your mistake. Asked what? You should have educated us. You should have educated what Swastika actually means. That is your mistake, so correct it. And that's what we have been doing. That's what we have been doing on individual level. Uh, you know, we don't have to wait for some national figure, national body or national organization to do. Each one of us can do it. Each one of us can educate uh, the schools where your children go or the organization you deal with or the police authorities or the local elected uh, city councillors or uh, MPPs or the MPs, etc. Then, a few days back, uh, last week, uh, Statistics Canada came out with a report. Uh, that the population of Hindu Canadians has gone up by 100% in the last 10 years. We are 830,000 strong Hindu Canadians today. We are formed 2.3% of the population. Uh, in the entire last uh, decade, 18.1% of uh, uh, immigrants to Canada came from India. You may think that 18% is not a big number, but it has never happened in Canada since 1960s. People from 150 different countries come to Canada. Out of that one country, India alone has sent 18%, which is a good thing. And then the international students, we are getting lots of international students. I think almost 600,000 international students. 40% of them are from India alone. Again, from about 100 different countries, international students come to Canada. And one country is dominating by sending 40% of the students, which shows there's a growth potential for Hindu Canadians in Canada. And it is time that we start recognizing that. The, the object, you know, the parliament also passed unanimously my private member's motion to declare November as the Hindu Heritage Month, which is a good thing. And 
the key things about the hindu heritage month my two objectives were two things one that we recognize celebrate educate share the contributions of hindu heritage to the mankind for thousands of years we know what hindus have done what hindu heritage has done what hindu culture has done for hundreds of years thousands of years the contribution of hindu heritage to medicine astronomy uh, various fields science is very well documented but most canadians don't know that and we have to use this opportunity this hindu heritage month to educate them second most important to me is that we have to recognize the contributions of hindu canadians to the socio economic development of our country and enriching our multicultural heritage you know hindu canadians as ethnic group is one of the the best ethnic groups in canada highly educated good income very few i mean i have not come across anybody who is living on social welfare i'm sure there will be some but in general highly educated have done so much of positive contribution to the socio economic development of country you know if you look at north american major tech companies many of the chief executives are hindu hindus hindu americans but people of hindu heritage so these are the kind of things we need to uh, we need to recognize and that's finally uh, you know when we when people generally a canadian or anybody talks of heritage usually they think in terms of the cultural heritage you know what they see in a museum or what they see in an archaeological site etc but unesco has identified what it calls as invisible or intangible heritage that passes from generation to generation most of this intangible heritage is not very well coded it is not very well written it is not a written script somebody can read and understand and follow it so it can be uh, for example uh, the what we call as the oral oral heritage the songs the storytelling the kathas as we call it things like that or it can be a performing arts like uh, bharatanatyam or carnatic music things like that or it can be uh, the festivities the community events like the diwali we host or it can be the traditional knowledge the traditional medicine or traditional cuisine or traditional navigational methods or it can be uh, something uh, uh, like uh, the traditional arts and crafts the things that are made by hand so those are the kind of things that is also needs to be highlighted there are two objectives one to educate canadians but more importantly to educate our younger generations in canada and i keep telling this everywhere we go when we say hindu canadians not all of us have come from india people have come from all parts of south asia people have come from africa people have come from caribbean they are also hindu canadians and we need to recognize that we need to highlight that too you know when i spoke on swastika on parliament hill Leslie Lewis the conservative mp who ran for leadership uh, twice uh, she came to me and said chandra my mom belongs to a practicing hindu family she is a christian that's fine and uh, when i hosted uh, the when i raised the hindu flag a flag of om on it on parliament hill to mark the beginning of uh, the hindu heritage month uh, i gave her an opportunity to speak she said to everybody my forefather my great grandfather name was ragunath he came from india see now people are taking pride to say that they have the hindu heritage they have the connection to that you know so the more we talk about it the more people will be comfortable the more people will acknowledge and so those are the kind of things we need to do you know whatever i'm doing here is just what uh, scholars like rajiv malhotra have laid on they have worked for decades together they have laid the groundwork on which we are walking so what they have done for thing today i am doing something tomorrow one of you will do otherwise our younger generation will do much more thank you so much for welcoming me rajiv ji thank you so much for thank you very much chandra rajiv i am going to meet uh, rajiv malhotra ji tomorrow again uh, i have got two other events to attend so if you kindly kindly excuse me i have to leave thank you thank you very much indra raji let's give him a big hand and a big thank you thank you ji just out of curiosity how many of you are hearing rajiv ji for the first time oh we have 
in person, let us say. All right. So you are lucky in that sense. How many of you have never heard him on internet even? Okay, so that means most of you are familiar with him, so I don't need to give you too much detail, uh, long story, no long context. Or let me just say, how many of you guys need a little bit of a context or a good amount of context what Rajivji's work is? Okay, so we've got a few people, but most of us kind of uh, know Rajivji's work. So I'll, I'll respond to this kind of a mix of audience so we don't uh, go too much or too little. So the way I see Rajivji's work is in scholarly, so obviously Rajivji is one of the prominent scholars, international scholars on Hindu civilization. Now, scholarly work, I mean, what's the difference between a normal, normal professor who's writing a research paper versus a deep scholar like Rajivji? So the way Rajivji takes is, the way I understand it, Rajivji, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm saying anything wrong. He takes a dominant narrative. For example, let us say casteism has, is viewed as XYZ. That's a narrative in the mainstream. And that narrative is supported by experts, or you can say so-called experts, who say that we are specializing in this knowledge. And then we somehow deep inside we feel this narrative is not right. But who does the hard work to take on that nexus of all the scholars who are specialists sitting in their prominent positions and build a counter narrative. So that's the kind of thing Rajivji takes on. Take a particular dominant narrative that is propagated by a scholars or ecosystem of scholars that is not based on objectivity and that has flaws in it. So he takes it on and then builds a counter narrative and building and writing a book is one part. That itself requires a huge amount of investigative work. But then top of it, after building that narrative, he takes, on, takes it on uh, himself to propagate it enough so that that counter-narrative builds its own momentum. It has its own life. So think of it. Typically, how many of people you know in history who does the scholarly work, and on top of it, the scholarly work, they go out in the world and then they propagate that as well. It's a different skill when you're dealing with the, the material world and the game of the world of propagating and stuff. And it's a different skill too. So it it's, it's requires huge amount of courage. Big thing is stamina, uh, detachment, critical thinking, so competence. And when you're dealing with new subjects, uh, going deep into it and building it, it's, it's, that is the purusharth, somebody takes on themselves that this is my duty, and that's what Rajivji has done. At least that's how I, I view his work. So he has done these narratives for many things. That's how we have uh, books over, I guess, more than a dozen years now, I guess, uh, uh, since eight, nine, we've had Breaking India, which had a particular theme of how a lot of geopolitical uh, institutions are working on the fault lines of India, then there's philosophical book breaking, uh, sorry, being different. Then there's Indrasna, there was a scholarly work about how Hinduism is not inherently one, it's just a new thing. So there's a lot of deep scholarly stuff that has happened. Now, this particular book, Snakes in the Ganga, what has been the dominant narrative? What is Rajivji uh, building a counter narrative to it? why the dominant narrative that's today has been, uh, is harmful for the civilization, or just not objective, that's, that's just a fake narrative. So those are the things he's, he's taking on. Uh, it's hard work, and this is how I have seen the work, and I will re request Rajivji if I misrepresented it in some way, but I would request, what is the theme of this book? What has been the narrative before the book? What Rajivji is presenting in this? And what is his vision? and how all of us can possibly support that vision. With that, I'll request Rajivji to make his comments. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sunil is one of the best uh, introducing my work because he's internalized it, understood it very well, and I'm very appreciative of that. So I, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for organizing this. And what a great occasion, the Hindu Heritage Month. 
So finally, we get our own recognition after working on this for a very long time. Uh, let me just tell you, 30 years ago or thereabouts, when I first started, forget anything like this, I was not even allowed to speak in most Hindu temples in North America. They were embarrassed that he'll say something like the kind of stuff we're talking about, defending swastika or talking about, hey, you know, there's all this Hindu phobia against us. Uh, the narratives are false. We have to counter them. This was considered too controversial. I have so many emails, so many, uh, so much of this uh, from the early days. People would say, temples would say that, no, no, we do puja. We don't worry. We don't, uh, we're very lucky that the government has allowed us. Almost like we're guilty of something. We have to be scared. And uh, let's not rock the boat. We're doing well. We're making some motels. We're buying some convenience stores. We're buying some fancy cars. Good, you know. It's like sort of a loser mentality, as if we are slaves and we're very grateful, you know, for uh, allowing us to survive. So I found this in the U.S. more than I, have, I wasn't as familiar with Canada until more recently. But in the U.S., I found a Chicago big temple would say, no, 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 we will rent him a place in a local place. We'll pay for it. We'll send you the food also, but you don't let him come here. <laughs> and then another temple would say, I'll tell you what, we won't announce it in the flyer. We'll say something else very general, and then we'll just, he comes through the side door, and then he can talk. It's almost like uh, I'm, I'm an embarrassment to them. So we started with that. So he talked about courage. It takes a lot of uh, persistence and stamina to just put up with all this. So then the, I would have uh, discussions with uh, our priests and our uh, uh, Advait gurus and our scholars who were full of all this kind of stuff, you know, a lot of lofty stuff, they knew all this stuff. And so they would say, no, no, but why are we talking about, uh, uh, you know, response and action and uh, power game? We are not into that. So I said, like he hinted, uh, Sunil hinted, both are itihas are like that. In one case, uh, Bhagwan comes as Sri Ram and he has to fight. And this is a power game, power structure. And in the other case, Sri Krishna comes and he plans out a war. So, what do you mean? If that is if that is not Hindu, I mean, if that is not part of our dharma, then, you know, you don't understand it. You are doing puja to Ram, you are doing puja to Krishna, but you need to understand that they played the roles. These are important roles also. Protection of the rashtra is important. Protection of the dharma is important. So, it's not just puja. It's not only bhakti. Bhakti is one aspect. It's a very wonderful aspect. Meditation. I'm a meditator for since I was a kid. And that's a very important aspect. But you cannot say that by meditation and yoga and bhakti, you've exhausted all that Hinduism has to offer. Hinduism has also got kshatriyata. Hinduism has also got that you have to take on, take on the forces that are, that are at work. And you have to do it for your society. Rise above your own personal needs. So I had to argue all this. And then I realized that the way to argue with our people is, like, is to give our reference points. Like you keep saying that this is in the Mahabharata, this is in the Ramayana, and this is in the Dharma Shastra. And then, then they'd say, okay, you know, must be okay to do. So uh, <laughs> when, I, when I took on the project of picking a dominant major discourse, major thesis, what we in our, uh, in our tradition call Siddhant. Siddhant is uh, a theory, a proposition, uh, a principle, a policy statement, that's a Siddhant. So you can have a Siddhant on, uh, you know, how rights are to be given. You can have a Siddhant that argues a certain point of view. So when you've established a Siddhant and adopted a Siddhant, it's like adopting a position on how you're going to reason and argue on a certain topic, certain kind of topic. You could have a Siddhant on, you know, economics. You could have a Siddhant on metaphysics. So our ancestors, their greatness was that when we took on, when we uh, studied a Siddhant, we always studied the opponent because, uh, because our people, uh, a lot of our people would say, why are you worrying about others? Why do you want to criticize them? This is not a Hindu way. And then they would tell me that, uh, uh, you know, Vasudeva Kutumbakam, so don't worry about others. Well, that's a mistaken view of Vasudeva Kutumbakam. I'll come to you that in a moment. But I discovered that I have to use the word Purva Paksha. And then they were all very impressed. I said, you know, Adi Shankara was the greatest proponent of Vedanta. 
that in modern time, in our memories, recent memory, so even though 1400 years or even longer back, um, his major approach was called Purvapaksha, which means study the other, understand the other in a respectful way, and then give a response to the other, Uttarapaksha. So this is an old system of ours. One of the reasons we declined as a civilization is, is that when the foreign influences started coming, we did not do Purvapaksha. Yesterday at the University of Toronto, one of the very exciting things, we had good Q&A with students. One of the students asked what was the reason for decline and I gave a lot of reasons, several reasons. And later, one of the reasons I gave was that we stopped doing Purvapaksha. So when the, when the Arabs came, you know, uh, uh, then later the Europeans came, we didn't look at who are these people, what's their point of view, what's their ideology. We did not Purvapaksha then. And we just were more concerned about we live our own life. We are, they must be poor people. They've come here to get food and maybe, maybe, maybe they, we don't have to worry about them. Well, they ended up becoming our rulers. So it's a stupid thing that you did not take them seriously for so long. So I kept telling our people that you have, our gurus today, our spiritual traditions have forgotten the Purvapaksha of the, not just ordinary people, but you have to do Purvapaksha of the most powerful things out there. The most powerful opposing points of view. So today it would be Western universalism. That's a term I used for describing how the experience of West, their history, their experience, their philosophy, their social problems, they've constructed views that kind of projected on everybody else. And so whatever they, they went through is supposed, is a template through which everybody else is to be studied. And that's, I call it Western universalism. But that denies everybody else their own history, their own way of looking at things, their own experiences. And how you recover this, one of the ways you recover it is through what I've called Sanskrit non-translatables. Because these terms are not translatable because our experience is not something that you can map onto somebody else's experience. They don't have a word for it because they didn't have the experience. So even a simple word like yoga, you cannot translate it in some language where they never did yoga. They don't know what it is. You cannot call it exercise, you cannot call it gymnastics, you cannot call it prayer, in none of those things. So huge number of Sanskrit non-translatables are a, 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 an evidence that we've had, uh, we've had things that are not mappable to Western universalism. And that's also the recipe to solve the problem, is you recover these terms, you recover our terms, and you introduce them into the English language, and I call that the Sanskritization of English. I gave a talk at the Indian Embassy in Washington, they never called me back because I talked about, my talk was the Sanskritization of English. And the, the, even the Americans, they loved it. They thought it's a very interesting idea. I said, you know, Sanskrit, English is enriched by Latin. You've got Greek words. There are French words. Why not put Sanskrit words in English and you enrich the English language? You already got some words like yoga and all that, but you don't really understand the meaning. But I'm talking about putting a lot of important terms and making them part of the English language, that would be the Sanskritization of English. They loved it. Is the Indian uh, embassy people very scared? Oh, no, 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 no. Maybe somebody, some journalist will call me chauvinist or something. They have, no, no, we can't do it. So they called the guy who had organized it, my friend there, uh, you know, Sant Guptaji, and they said, no, no, you know, this we don't want and all. So what I'm telling you is that now it's good that we're celebrating all these things. But the journey to get here has been very difficult. It's not been easy because you have to fight our own temples, you've got to fight our own politicians, you've got to fight our own, uh, you know, leaders who are representing supposedly Hindu Dharma, you've got to fight the diplomats, you've got to fight all those guys. Because it didn't necessarily have to turn out this way. I'm glad it did. But it could have turned out the other way had nobody really stood up and shifted this and pushed it in the other direction. So that was an essential, very uh, important movement and it's been there for 30 years. It's not, we're not done. We're not fully done because there is still a lot that, uh, and this book is another level we're taking it to, and I will come to that in a moment. I mean, there's so many uh, issues to, to talk about. The issue that, uh, uh, one of the issues that uh, the gentleman before who is a MP, he's an MP here, right? MP, very nice, he spoke. MP from uh, uh, this uh, Toronto area? No, Ottawa. Ottawa. Very good, very nice. Hindu, very proud. Wow. I have to say, I wish he were here. I would want to congratulate him because in the United States, we have five or six Indian Hindu 
congressmen in the Democratic Party who are ashamed of that. Yeah. yeah, and I say, and I say, kudos to you Canadians that you've got your uh, your MPs representing you rather than betraying you. Uh, we have our congressmen taking our money. I have stupid people who live in Princeton. I don't want to name them, but they'll see all these video. Uh, they are my friends. They are very rich people. They made a lot of money. And for them, it's a big showing off thing that you have a fundraiser and you raise million dollars for this congressman and for this one and that one. And they are zero in their brain in terms of figuring out what is his position. What is his view on this, that, that and that. And as long as he looks Indian, he's ethnic, we're very proud, you know, he's like one of our betas, we're going to give him money and he will run and whatnot. But now we are realizing that most of these people betrayed us. And there was no quality control, there was no purva paksha. You have to study them. That takes some time. And so we ended up with that uh, problem and you guys haven't, I'm glad that you haven't and maybe and US people should learn from, from, uh, from this. The second thing he mentioned, I wish he were here, I wanted to uh, tell him a little bit about the history of this fight over the swastika. I had something to do with it. Uh, 25 years ago or so, uh, you know, Swami Dhenan Saraswati, the Ashvita Guru Club, major figure in representing Hinduism, after Swami Chinmayanand, and before that, Swami Vivekanand, he's probably the titanic figure, the gigantic figure uh, who represent us, represented us in the world stage. Uh, he's no more. Uh, so we were very close. And uh, so one day he calls me and he says that we have this letter from the Jewish side. They want to do a Hindu-Jewish summit of leaders because we have common problems, common issues facing the world. And so they have, they have to face certain problems in the, you know, religion, certain religions always attacking them, same ones attacking us. So they feel we should have a summit. And the purpose of the summit is to figure out what's common, what are the issues that we should resolve. So why don't you come and we'll have a gathering. So Swamiji called um, various Hindu leaders and he called me. And the others were mostly sadhus representing big Sampadayas, big organizations. So Swamiji went around asking, you know, what should be with our agenda? What should we propose? What are the topics? So if somebody wanted to say that we God is one, you know, you know and somebody wanted to say that uh, we should teach them about some our our philosophy and so forth, mostly philosophical views. <clears throat> My view was that they're not wanting to meet with us to learn philosophy, at least not in the first meeting. I mean, they want to understand, you know, from our point of view, what are the things to be solved? What are the matter? Jews are very practical people. They're very action oriented. They'll put some things on the table for us and then we should put some things on the table for them. That's how they want to negotiate. So Swamiji said, what do you think we should say? So I said, what we should say, talk about is swastika because that is an issue that comes from the Jewish side. It is, it is the Holocaust of the Jews which banned this as a Hitler symbol and that is wrong, incorrect information. And if you can convince the Jews and if, we, if they can go public in a resolution of, uh, uh, that we can all agree on, uh, that will be very historical. So all these people looking at me saying, no, no, Swami is very controversial. He'll, all, he'll just say something like that and no, we can't talk to the Jews about swastika. So I said, you have to talk to the Jews about swastika. So I remember uh, a few years before that, we used to fund, our foundation used to fund a Princeton Day School, which is a nice, well-known private school in Princeton. My kids used to go there. We funded that they take, uh, they had a class called World Religions. So we would take their class and some teachers and students and parents uh, to India to study World Religions. And they would go to Rishikesh and they went to Nepal, they went to various towns in Delhi and they looked at all the different faiths, you know, how they're practiced in India. And to give them orientation, to give them a kind of a, a talk, I gave a talk to the whole school introducing some ideas that I thought educationally would be valuable. And one of the ideas I talked about was swastika. I said, one of the things you should learn, you're going to go to India, is your, your whole idea of swastika is wrong. And this is what it is. 
and all of them, uh, the principal called me, she was a very enlightened person, very wonderful person. But she said, you know, parents don't like this, there are a lot of Jews here. You're, you're saying that, oh, we should teach them, teach them about swastika. Teach them about swastika. I said, yeah, you should teach them about swastika. So anyway, it was considered a bit controversial. But these kids went. When they came back, they all had to present their experience. So many of them, at least I would say three or four of them, in their photographs, pictures of what was unusual, what was strange, what was exciting and all that, they would show the swastika behind a truck, swastika on a road somewhere under the name of a street or some kind of in a small town, you know, the, uh, the name of a shop, you know, there's some swastika symbol on it. Everywhere there's swastika. So the, the, this was a way of the, the school got very introduced to this idea that, hey, there's something normal in India. And if you want to understand them on their own terms, we better know what this means to them, which is different than what we are told. So that started my whole project. And then when Swamiji told me about this Jewish meeting, I brought this out. And sure enough, the other people present, they didn't like this idea. So I gave Swamiji my view. I said, you know, if you, if you want to put, if you want to educate them, rather than educating them, God is one and all that, you should tell them about swastika, which is something, a matter of tension, and we can, we can show them evidence. So he said, I'll agree, go with you. You go, go for it. So he encouraged me. And I prepared a presentation on swastika. And the meeting was held in Delhi. The first meeting, the second was held in London, then New York, then Tel Aviv, like that. So this Hindu and Christian, uh, Hindu and Jewish side had many meetings. And uh, Swamiji would ask me to be the sort of Hindu scholar to come around. And so in that meeting, the Jews were sitting on one side table. We were sitting on this side. And the Jews side was led, the delegation was led by someone who's a cabinet member of the Israeli cabinet. The Israeli government has a cabinet post who's called the chief rabbi. Yeah, the, the, the Jewish, uh, the Israeli country has a cabinet position for the chief rabbi, you know, in their country. So the chief rabbi is sitting there and all these important people. So one, the, the protocol was that there'll be, we'll alternate speakers. So somebody from their side spoke, the, their head of the delegation and Swamiji from our side, then uh, different people. So Swamiji gave uh, priority to all the sadhus. They were somebody from BAPS and somebody from this and that and various organizations. They all spoke. And then in the, then Swamiji looked at me and said, now nah, you go, your turn, give it to them. So I went there and I said, fine. I'll, so I said that I'm going to tell you about swastika. And they all, the Jews, very nice, smile, polite, you know, okay. Yeah. Very, as you would expect people, Westerners, very polite, you know, nice. And then they're listening to me and I'm going on and on telling them. I got a standing ovation from these guys, the only speaker, because they thought they learned something new and I was so honest about it and they liked it. So then another meeting of the same group, then they said, we want to, uh, I said, you should investigate it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. So they appointed a team of two scholars from each side. So me and one other scholar Hindu and one, two scholars from the Jewish side. And they said before the next meeting, every year we'll have a meeting. So before the next meeting, which is going to be somewhere in London or New York, uh, you give us a report, joint report. So these four of us would talk and meet and we gave them all our data and they checked it out. And they also, we wrote a, they also wrote a pay, briefing paper to the Jewish side, telling them how, what they have discovered about what our findings are. And so this is done in a very scholarly way. And the Jewish side was beginning, was more and more accepting of whatever we are saying and finding it very amazing that one of the things that keeps our traditions separate is that there is this big misunderstanding. And so uh, the final, uh, the resolution was going to be passed. A resolution of the three or four meetings of the summit uh, was going to be passed in, uh, in Israel. And I had a family issue, fam family health issue, medical surgery going on, very serious one. So I couldn't attend at the last minute. Uh, but Swamiji asked one of his people that you get Rajiv to draft what the resolution should say about the swastika. So my, I read a draft and that draft was printed on the, we, the Hindus and Jews, blah, 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 we, all their names, 
we resolve as follows. And that resolution says that swastika is not anything to do with the Hitler, Nazism and all. It's a sacred symbol and we the Jews respect it. They said that and this was signed by the chief rabbi and by all those people. I have, a, I have that with me and there is a PDF on it. If you want, I can send you and this is on the internet. So this document where the Jewish, the, at the highest level of the Jewish people, they accepted this officially as a policy statement that they will no longer lobbying against the swastika because the Jews, the, you know, Hitler never called it uh, swastika. He called it Hackenkraus. And uh, in the uh, 1900s, uh, early part of the, when the, the, the Nazi party got into office, when they were becoming very powerful, uh, election wise, they were running, uh, winning and all that. Uh, when they were becoming powerful, then the New York Times had a, uh, article, I have a copy of that and it says the Nazis announce a new symbol. And that is the first US media coverage on this new symbol. And it is not nowhere in that article is it called swastika. So this was never called swastika. In Hitler's book Mein Kampf, in the German edition, not the English translation, it is not called swastika. So the Germans themselves did not call it that. It is a British because they wanted to kind of, because Indian nationalists were fight, fight, up, getting up and you know, Arya Samajis were there, all kind of people were there. And so the, our swastika is a big symbol for us. It was their strategy to keep us down in the eyes of the world and link us with fascism and do Hitler and all that and show that this independence movement is all, you know, and whatever it is linked with the enemy. So they translated it like this. This became part of the whole Indology, Indology. And then they started linking it with some Aryan stuff and all that. So, uh, you know, so this theorizing the Aryan and then bringing it down and linking with Hitler, this all happened you know, as mischief. And I've written, this is what I wrote in my book, Bring Dif uh, Breaking India, I wrote about all these things. So this, I wish I would tell him that the, what he has produced, what he's announcing is, the, is a tremendous victory. But for those of us who've been fighting it, it's also mixed emotions because people, our own people didn't support it. For our own people didn't support it. My own family would say, Rajiv, why are you fighting? What are you going to get out of it? Now our neighbors are asking, why is he involved with this swastika? And you know all this kind of stuff. So it is not. It is not. Uh, it is not an easy thing for you to stand up for a cause where you're not going to get anything out of it. You're only going to get hit. You're only going to get hit uh, by around people also. So that's what this kshatriya is about. It is. It is. It is. It involves and it means you have to stand up and take it because firstly nobody else will do this if you have to do it. Uh, secondly, you're going, not going to get anything out of it. You're only going to get uh, blamed for things. And it's not going to be an easy victory. You're just going to spend your whole life doing this. Uh, there'll be many you know, ups and downs and you'll also have, uh, you'll face setbacks. You'll have to do it despite all that. Now, I mentioned a while back that I'll tell you about uh, the mistaken interpretation of uh, Vasudeva Kutumbakam. Vasudeva Kutumkam, when it says that the whole world is a family, doesn't mean that uh, all the family members are good. <laughs> in fact, in the Kauravs and Pandavas are on family. Yes. Kauravs and Pandavas are on family. Vasudeva that doesn't mean, I mean we, our people are so dumb and so stupid. You just say Vasudeva Kutumkam, they say, ha, 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 everybody's fine. But, that doesn't, but it's so stupid. The, the Devas and Asuras in the Samudra Manthan are, are one family. Devas and Asura, one family. So you see the whole world is a family. Of course, the bacteria is also family, but if it's my, doc, my job as a doctor, I have to kill this bacteria. Of course, Bin Laden is also part of the fa same family. Of course, whoever is the uh, enemy who is out to kill us, he is also part of the same family. Uh, so Vasudha Kutumbukam does not mean that I accept everything the other fellow does, no matter how stupid, vicious, ugly, dangerous, because, you know, he's part of my family. That is not what we are supposed, we are not supposed to become morons. Vasudha Kudumukam is not a, a slogan for morons. I mean, it says uh, at one level, we are all one family. The, uh, Krishna is telling Arjun, the oneness of all the Atmas 
that dissolve Bhagwan's form only. So he's telling them that oneness. And yet, why you have to go kill these guys? Not only ordinary people, your own cousins. So unless you have understood that at one level there is one, at another level of manifestation there is many, and these manys have conflicts, and you have to play your role in this conflict. Unless you understand that, you don't know what Leela means, what is meant by Leela. And you just got some escapist idea of uh, some shlokas you know, and you can talk about oh, lofty stuff, and we are one, and Vasudeva, Kutumukam, and all that. It's all nonsense. You have to understand the complexity of the world, many levels of meaning at different levels of consciousness. So yes, at one level, uh, there is only one. Okay, so I had this problem, uh, somebody introduced me to some sadhu who I was told is very intelligent, he's very educated and he knows all these things and he will help you work with you. So I remember this was in Bangalore, so we met in a hotel and we, we met in the lounge in coffee, we had breakfast together. So he walks in and he starts talking about, I don't like any differentiation. He didn't like that I'm showing differentiation. Because he said, no, no, it creates uh, tension. So I don't like, uh, I don't mind, I don't want you to talk, say that there's difference. So it's all same. So I said, then you shouldn't be calling yourself Swami X, Y, Anand. You should say you are Reverend so-and-so, Reverend Smith. It's the same thing, sir. So he, he's not very happy. So I said, you know, uh, because you're saying it's all the same, all everything, all the materials are Bhagwan only. If everything is Bhagwan, then this, Food and the prasad and what you throw as waste in the toilet are same. So you can interchange them. You can, you can eat that as your prasad and you can throw this away. What's the difference? What's the difference between uh, eating certain things and avoiding certain things? What's the difference between, uh, you know, good and bad? It means good be same here, bad be same here, wo be same here, bhagwan here. After all, if you think about it, how would you differentiate between something is sattvic and something is tamasic? something is uh, rajasic, how would you differentiate in Ayurveda between the guna, between the different type of prakritis or different people have? If you do not understand the importance of difference because everything is Bhagwan, then you know you cannot function. You cannot function between an honest tax return and a dishonest tax return because to you it's the same. Maybe you just add a few zeros here and there and then it's the same for you. I said then, you know, if you're a doctor and you're supposed to give 10 milligram and you give him 1000 milligram, you can just say a few more zeros, how does it matter? <laughs> so he said, no, no, because that will kill the patient. But I said, whether he's dead or alive is the same. <laughs> so, you know, the person got so mad, fed up of me, he walked out. <laughs> because I was giving him his own logic. I was showing that, his own, that our people have not understood. We parrot certain things, but we don't really understand fully. And there is value in going deeper. So, same at one level, but very different at another level, we have to understand and deal with it. That at a certain level of consciousness, things are the same, but that consciousness, unified consciousness, includes within it all the differences. And so, when your consciousness is operating at the level of differences, which is the dharmic kshetra, the karmic kshetra, the Kurukshetra, the fact that we are born is that we have to, we have our prarabd and we have to perform it in this level of reality. And in this level of reality, we have to negotiate differences. We have to understand differences. We have to deal with differences. We must know the difference between right and wrong. Between dharma and the adharma, there is difference. Otherwise, the whole jnana is useless because if there is no difference, everything is the same, then why are you talking me, telling me about dharma and adharma? It's all the same. So, our own people are confused. Our own teachers are confused. So you guys have to be not only knowledgeable, but you have to go sometimes raise questions and educate our teachers also because they need to learn. There's a lot of, lot of colonialization, colonization of our uh, teaching. Uh, the fact that uh, most of the great thinkers, when they translated Gita, they translated Atman as soul, and they translated all these kind of things, uh, and even, uh, uh, even uh, Akash as ether, it's not ether. It is full of con context. So, there are, so, you know, this mistranslation of words, of which are non-translatable, and uh, very easily going into Western universalism to feel, con to feel like, you know, we are sort of superior. So, to look like we are also like Westerners, we've done these things. If you look at, uh, 
the I, I'm writing one of the books I'm writing is on Rashtra. So obviously I'm looking at many, many sources. I thought I should also ask RSS because their name starts with Rashtra. So obviously they should have done the research. So this, this is from the very senior levels of thinkers and scholars. They sent me to one young man. He, he will know, he, he will tell you. I said, I want to read for myself. So they gave me uh, the RSS founders works on uh, his writings and said, this, these are the works there. You will find Rashtra explained. I'm sorry to tell you, I have a lot of respect for a lot of work RSS has done. I read the English version, maybe in Marathi he wrote differently, I don't know. But in the English version, he starts by explaining nation state as a European concept and lists a range of European scholars of, who are experts in nation state and quotes them, not one Indian not one Indian Shastra and defining that idea of nation state, he says this is a Rashtra. So we've digested Rashtra into Western universalism, which is, which is very strange because my whole topic is what is Rashtra different from nation state? Yes. What the, and, and this guy, he's a founder of RSS, great man, given I've been to his Samadhi in Nagpur and all that, I respect them. But I have to say that the, if, if there are other documents that are more important, I wasn't given those. I was given this one, which is a book. And I found that if I were in his shoes, I would start from the Vedic definition of Rashtra. So I started doing my own. I, because I found that uh, none of them had done a, a Rashtra idea from our texts. So you tell me now, I want you to guess how many times has the word Rashtra come in the Vedic text, guess. How many times? No, okay, there, it comes over 30 times. Very interesting. Yeah, but I'm saying that uh, the word Rashtra comes, see, there's a problem, we don't have searchable texts. You have searchable Guru Granth Sahib, you have searchable Quran, you have searchable Bible. Not only the primary text, but all the commentaries and all that, they're searchable. So searchability, I mean, we're doing so many all kind of Utpatank work. Somebody should produce searchable, all the Shastra, make it searchable. So if I put in, uh, if I put in Varna, if I'm doing research on it, I should get all the hits, all the slokas. If I'm saying Jati, I should get all of them. If I'm saying Rashtra. Now, it's very interesting for me to figure out Rashtra I had to go through half a dozen Vedic scholars. Each of them is like a search engine. Each of them. Vedic scholar is a search engine because this guy says, I know these texts. I know all of them. I will tell you. You give me the term and I'll tell you where it appears. So he'll, he'll give you, will take a month or two and he'll give you a list of all the shlokas. He'll tell you. That's very good. But it should be 10 seconds. It should not take 10 months you know, to do that. And then you go to a different scholar and he'll find some of the same, but he'll have different ones also. So you keep doing it and then at some point you say, okay, I think I've got a good idea of what it means. The word Rashtra appears a lot. The word Rajya appears a lot. Okay. So I'm just giving you some clues. Those of you who are research oriented because I'm going to write these books anyway, but many other people may want to join in. Rashtra is not the same as Rajya. Okay. And what we call Rashtrapati should be called Rajapati. That Rashtrapati Bhavan, that Rashtrapati is not a correct Rashtrapati according to Vedic idea of Rashtrapati. So, you know, we are also mixed up. True. Now, of course, first we have to fight Mandir We made mandirs very good and do bhakti and don't call us idol worshippers and cult and all that, which is what we were facing 30, 40 years ago. We are past that. Then you allow us to teach, talk about Kshatriyata and we are now able to talk about Kshatriyata 
can talk about, you know, Hindu phobia, can talk about it openly and confidently. We have MP also who can stand up and talk about it and challenge uh, the, their idea of uh, swastika. We very, we've come a long way. Now we have to go even further. We have to keep doing this. We can't just stay, now we just eat our laddus and go home. <laughs> you have to continue this work. Because now what you have to say is, are there deep in our structure today, including our constitution, including the, uh, the ruling party, including the Sangh, the RSS, all of these guys, are, are, they, are they the product of a lot of influences, 1000 year, 12 year influence of all kind of foreign stuff that they have unconsciously and inadvertently internalized that we need to pull these out. You see my point. So uh, there, there is a lot of work ahead. And uh, uh, I'm just giving you a few examples. We don't, we don't properly interpret Vasudeva Kutumbakam. We don't interpret Rashtra. We don't interpret Raja, all kind of stuff like that. I could go on, but I, I, I came to talk about my book. I just, I felt so excited about the MP. I, I felt so excited. I thought I'll talk about those things because I don't see in the United States such uh, uh, people who are elected officials who talk about Hindu dharma as an elected official. So I really wish he were here. I would love to have a video discussion with him that I can take it back to the US. Uh, and if you can arrange that, I would even on Skype or on Zoom, we can do that. I would love to have a video discussion with him. Uh, we have our elections coming next week in the US. And I wish I would, uh, could uh, feature this and show, hold those people uh, responsible in the US. So that's why I got sidetrack, but this is a good conversation also to talk about these things. Now talk, tell you a little bit about the book. The book takes on a huge narrative, a huge Siddhant that has come from the West, which is called wokeism as a popular term. It's also called critical race theory. It's a form of Marxism. It came to help the blacks against the whites, which was a good thing. I fully support that. But then the Indian left was involved in converting it into critical caste theory, which says that the Dalits are the blacks of India and the non-Dalits are the whites of India. And caste is like racism. So in US, you have very tough racism laws. So now they are, there is a book, whole book from Harvard on how IITs are basically casteist. IITs, the, the, the term, the idea of meritocracy is a sham. It's not really meritocracy. What they really are doing is caste uh, bias and they're calling it merit, but the system is against the Dalits and minorities and it supports the Brahmins. This is what their theory is. It's from Harvard University Press and written by a Harvard professor. So it carries a lot of weight. And then they're taking these ideas to Silicon Valley and filing lawsuits against Silicon Valley companies, which hire a lot of Indians, saying that these Indians are all casteist and biased and they're racist. So you have to do surveys and we have to do uh, caste sensitivity training workshops. And these caste sensitivity training workshops are done by people who just hate Hindus, Hinduism, and they're charging up to $75,000 an hour to conduct these workshops. So I was telling uh, Sunil, we should start a consulting business. Uh, some, this is a kind of, what you do, what they've done is find out people who are very rich who pay whatever because they, they feel that and you tell them something that can be a scandal, that can be a big controversy for them and they don't want it. And you tell them, Dekho, ye kiya, we found this. Huh? You're right up to the CEO on down, a lot of these Brahmins and this is the stuff we found about them. And you'll all be accused of racism. Your company will fall apart because it's bad reputation. But we can give you sensitivity training. We can help you figure it out. And we have to go to every department and keep repeating this sensitivity training dozens of times. Of course, a lot of money they can make. So this is, uh, this is going on now. So this type of work is happening. Uh, and Harvard is at the center of doing this kind of work. It's been there for a while, happening for a while. Another surprise that we, another bombshell in this book is that some Indian billionaires are funding it. Now you might wonder why the hell are they funding it? Why is uh, Mittal, there is this Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute. It used to be called Indology, 
now it's called south asia studies and nakshvi mittal and family funding it but the subject matter and the content and the type of people they bring there are hindu phobic people they bring all these kind of ultra left people and they go there's always putting out poison against our tradition and billionaire's name is on this on the panel in the back you know when you have that uh, display it says lakshmi mittal and family uh, then there is this mahindra humanities center there is the piramal public health all of this kind of stuff so we are exposing a certain siddhant which is very anti india are we calling it breaking india 2.0 we calling that the poison then the nest of snakes is harvard where the snakes are being produced born nurtured they are breeding snakes with this poison and then these snakes are being exported all over they bring snakes from india baby snakes and make them put poison and send them back and there's a lot of this going on and i would say a couple of thousand people from india have been brainwashed turned around in in from industry from media from academia from policy making all kind of people like that have come and gone through these seminars and conferences and been sent back so when you wonder why are there so many is officers that are confused why is there so much media negativity why are the indian government's policies sometimes mixed up you know you have to look at where are the influences coming from and the discovery of these influences uh led me to the mightiest most powerful university in the world and think tanks in the world uh and so and along with this harvard university is a world economic forum they are also interrelated they are into these kind of things so india may point is that anything that is prestigious people will blindly take it they want to be part of the fashion because it's cool you know you write your check 50 million dollars and give it to them and your name is on a building and you now made it your part you're an honorary white so that's the thing that the indians want so that's what this book is about it exposes that now i don't want you to feel afraid of the size it's not just for exercise <laughs> you need to read about 100 pages that's all 40 page introduction 30 40 page conclusion in between 22 chapters each has a one page overview you just need an introduction one one page overview which is the overview tells you what's the highlights of the chapter what you need to know to understand the chapter and then the conclusion you will know everything that the book says only thing you will have missed out is all the evidence so it's like you know when you go to when a legal case is made there is a the theory what is the case and then there's all the exhibits all the evidence all the testimony all the all the data forensics and what not so i put that all in the book because i want it all in one place so if you make a if you make a statement it's like a training manual for a hindu toolkit think of it like that so we're training people on what are these issues what to say so if you say what i've said and somebody wants to push back and get more data then we have the data also the evidence that's why the book is big but don't let that scare you thank you very much uh, all of you for organizing this is a great mandir i have seen such good vibration when i come here